Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, welcome back. I am Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass, and I'm delighted to have you with me today because this is it. This is the last week in our Uncertainty Message series. Now, over the last seven weeks, we've talked a lot about spiritual doubt, and we've talked about religious certainty, and we've talked about how to navigate all of those things. But in spite of all the doubt that we've talked about, there's still a question mark that may still be hanging out there for many people, and it's a question mark that has made it impossible for some people to even consider Christianity at all, and it's this. How do we know any of this is real? How can we prove it? Well, Jesus was asked questions like this from people who wanted to know the same things from him. They wanted to know for sure if he was the Messiah. He was asked questions like this from people who wanted him to give them some sort of a sign or miracle that would conclusively prove that he was the Messiah. But when people came to him looking for proof, he almost always disappointed them. He would refuse to perform whatever signs they wanted to see, and, and he often spoke in unclear and, and sometimes confusing ways about his identity and his mission. I mean, Jesus regularly presented people with more questions to wrestle with than he did answers. And in that regard, today, I'm going to be very Christ-like, because my answer to how do we prove all this is real is that I can't. I can't prove God. I mean, at least I can't empirically prove him with math or science. I can't use my senses to see, hear, taste, touch, or smell God. He exists beyond the quantifiable ways we measure and understand our physical world, which is a problem for some people. Because if there's no empirical evidence, how can we ever be certain about God? Now, the answer for some Christians is to approach the Bible itself as a fully literal scientific text. And, and so they seek to prove God by matching up what we can observe in our physical world with the ancient writings that are found in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And that's how we end up with things like the Creation Museum in Kentucky, which attempts to explain the origins of the universe based on a literal reading of the book of Genesis. And the Creation Museum comes complete with a recreation of Noah's Ark that's built exactly from the specs found in the Bible. Uh, it has a dinosaur exhibit that's based on a biblical timeline of history rather than what the fossil record says. And it even has a replica of the Garden of Eden, which I would assume has no naked people, but I'm not positive. And while this may be a fun vacation for some Christians to take, trying to contort the scientific observations of the physical world to fit the ancient writings of the Bible can be problematic. For example, let's take Billy. Billy wants to explore faith in God, so he gets a Bible and he starts reading. And like anyone would do, he starts on page one in the book of Genesis. And the first thing it says is that God created everything in six days. Now, Billy's confused by this because all of the scientific evidence shows that the Big Bang was the initiating event that brought everything into existence, and that happened 13.8 billion years ago. And that it took hundreds of millions of years after that for what we now see in the universe to have developed from the Big Bang. And he's also confused because the theory of evolution says that life has taken millions of years to develop and grow. And, and now Billy's having doubts about all of this God stuff right out of the gate because 
the Bible story doesn't line up with the scientific evidence. So Billy goes online and he, he wants to search out how do religious people make sense of this? And then he sees theories, like one that says that Noah had dinosaurs on the ark, but they were baby dinosaurs rather than full-grown ones, and that's how they fit. Even though the empirical evidence says that these dinosaurs and humans lived millions of years apart from each other. And then Billy sees other people who are saying that God really did make the earth in six days. He just created everything in such a way as to make it appear older than it actually is. And that God did this by planting fake fossils and misleading geological evidence. Which makes Billy doubt even more because why would God create a universe that's designed to deceive people about its own origins and existence? So Billy puts down the Bible after reading only two chapters because he, he can't believe that it's a literal history. And also because of the pretzels that so many Christians are twisting themselves into in order to defend it as literal and scientific. Which brings us back to that fundamental doubt. How do we know any of this is real? How can we prove it? Well, like I said, I don't have empirical proof today. But I do want to talk about something that Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, And I understand that this may be circular reasoning, talking about the Bible to prove the Bible. But let's look at what Jesus says here. Jesus said, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, I think the clearest thing Jesus says about understanding God and reconciling our doubt is found in that last sentence. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, God is not an equation to be solved or a theory to be proven. If he's there, he's a person to be revealed. And check this out. The original Greek word that's used here for reveal is apocalypsi, which is where we get the word apocalypse. Apocalypse in the original Greek, it didn't mean the end of the world like it, it, it come, has come to mean in our culture. Apocalypse meant to uncover or reveal something in dramatic fashion. It brings to mind a theater with a large stage and a packed audience filling all the seats and the house lights dim and the crowd goes silent as a spotlight hits the stage. And then the curtains slowly pull back to reveal what everyone has been waiting to see. And Jesus says that the only way to truly know God is to experience this kind of personal apocalypse, this grand revelation of himself to us. Now, let me give you an example of someone who experienced this in a way that radically changed their life. And it's a man named Saul. Saul lived in first century Jerusalem. He was as righteous, upstanding, and religious a Jew as you were going to find anywhere. He was raised in the faith, and so he would have had the first five books of the Torah, which we would have known as the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He would have had all of that completely memorized by age 10. And then Saul was chosen to be a disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel, who held a senior position on the Jewish high council. And, and this was a guy who was known as one of the greatest teachers in all of Judaism. Saul knew the scriptures. He followed all the re religious laws. He had a great teacher. Saul was a religious man fully committed to God. And look at what it says in Acts chapter 9 about him. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats 
with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. See, the problem was that good, righteous Jews like Saul, they thought that followers of Jesus were heretics. And and because Saul was so zealously committed to his faith, he devoted himself to destroying Christianity. And that's where we find him on the road to Damascus. And the story continues. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This moment right here, as recounted by Saul, was his own personal apocalypse. On the road to Damascus, on the way to arrest Christians, Jesus revealed himself to Saul in an encounter that had nothing to do with a religious service or even a religious text. And if you're familiar with this story, you know this, that Saul's name was changed to Paul and that he became the greatest and and maybe most important theologian the church has ever known. He started churches all over the ancient Mediterranean world. He wrote letters to churches that make up a majority of the New Testament that we read today. And all of that began with an encounter with Jesus. It began with an apocalypse when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, an experience with God. I mean, check this out. Many years later, Paul was in Jerusalem at the Jewish temple. He was a Christian, and he was there to complete a a purification ritual when a mob of religious Jews recognized him and started beating him. Roman soldiers rushed in to stop the violence, and Paul asked them if he could address the mob to calm them down. And this is what Paul said to the mob in Acts 22, 1 through 8. He says, brothers and esteemed fathers, listen to me as I offer my defense. I was, as I was on the road approaching Damascus, about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Now, this is important. Okay, why did I jump ahead to, uh, you know, 20 verses later to see this story when Paul gets beaten in the temple? Well, here's why. When Paul was facing arrest by the the Jewish leadership because he was a Christian, what was his defense? Paul could have appealed to the Jewish scriptures, which he knew inside and out, but he didn't do that. He could have announced his authority as a select disciple of the rabbi Gamaliel, Paul could have proclaimed his own righteousness as a devout, God-fearing, law-abiding Jew. But instead of all of that, Paul defended himself by telling the people about his encounter with Jesus, about the time when Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Because in Paul's mind, the greatest defense of his Christianity was not found in the Jewish scriptures or in his own obedience It was found in the fact that Jesus had personally revealed himself to Paul. 
And what's crazy, this exact same thing happened again in Acts chapter 26. Paul's standing trial before King Agrippa, and Paul defended his faith by recounting the story of his personal experience with Jesus. Paul talks about this again in a letter to the Galatian church in Galatians 1. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. I received it by a direct apocalypse from Jesus. The truth of the matter is that Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus because he discovered the truth about Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul knew the Old, he knew the Old Testament Jewish scriptures backward and forward, but he didn't discover Jesus there. He didn't find Jesus in the righteous life that he lived or through the Greek and Roman philosophy that he would have studied. None of those things could prove Jesus to him. What did? was a personal experience in which Jesus revealed himself to Paul. And it was an experience Paul couldn't prove with empirical evidence. And yet for him, it was the only evidence he needed. His revelation of Jesus became the filter through which everything else in his life ran through. How he read the scriptures, how he lived out his righteousness, how he saw himself. His revelation of Jesus was the basis for what he believed. Because, and here's the point, religion without revelation is irrelevant. Life following Jesus is more than just going through religious motions. It's about having a personal experience with him. Imagine a few years from now, someone wants to write a biography about my wife. And so they go and they interview everyone that she's ever interacted with in her whole life. They pour over all of her medical records. They dig through all of her social media and all the emails she's ever sent or received. And they put together this exhaustive book about her life. It's so exhaustive that there are things in there that even I didn't know about. Stories and anecdotes or things that she did or said when she was younger that I'd never heard. Her biographers have literally uncovered everything there is to know about my wife. But here's a question. Do they know her better than I do? They know all about her, but do they know her better than me? And the answer is obviously no, because no matter what they can learn about her or hear about her, there's a quality to love that requires revealing yourself to another person in a way that goes deeper than just facts and figures. My love for her can't be measured or quantified, but that doesn't mean it isn't more real and more meaningful than just knowing about her. In fact, love may be the most powerful force that has ever existed in the world, but it can't be measured or held. And God loves you. In fact, in Revelation 3.20, and yes, Revelation is literally the word apocalypse, Jesus says this. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. God wants to reveal himself to you through Jesus. And he wants you to have your own personal apocalypse. And he's knocking at the door of your life, ready to show you who he is. The question is simply this, will you open the door? 
God's love may not be provable through scientific measurement. He may not be quantifiable with your five senses. But God's also not a Lego set that can be put together by following the correct instructions. He's a person to be known, loved, and experienced as he reveals himself to you. And he wants you to know him. And I know this can be frustrating because this message doesn't contain a simpler practical takeaway. You may, you may have more questions than answers right now. And that's okay. Because there are some spiritual itches that can't be scratched apart from an apocalypse. And I want you to have one. May you encounter Jesus in a deeply personal way. My prayer for you is that the greatest defense of your faith is not some external empirical evidence, but it's the story of your experience, the moment when he revealed himself to you. So if you are a person who is wrestling with spiritual doubt, I understand. If you're a person who's struggling with the fact that you feel like you lack the empirical evidence of God and of what he wants to do and what he wants to be in your life, I understand that as well. I would just encourage you, open yourself up and be willing to experience and encounter Jesus. Because once you do, that becomes the foundation of everything else that follows. And in the exact same way that the deepest love that you've ever felt for another person can't be quantified or measured or held, there's a quality of love that God has for you and that he wants you to experience with him that can't be measured or quantified in the same way, but is no less real. May you experience him in his love in a way that transforms and changes your life forever. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com. Compass.